Super Talk Mississippi media production. Find your new ride at Kia McCombs all-new location at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Come find out why McComb loves Kia McComb at the corner of I-55 and Highway 98. Right on the corner, right on the price. Howdy, howdy, it's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Everyone and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host Gerard Gibbard, along with Rhino in the Element Wealth Studios, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this Friday Eve. <laughs> yes, indeed. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thanks to Lucian Smith for uh, filling in yesterday. Headed down to Lincoln County, Brookhaven, Mississippi. Enjoyed addressing the Servitium Club uh, there. Always fun getting out and around the great state of Mississippi. And, and Rhino, you know, I know you've been doing this longer than I am. I'm always so pleasantly surprised everywhere I go around the state to run into people that talk about listening to the show. On a regular basis. Listen to you every day. You hear it all the time, don't you? Oh, yeah. It's awesome. We so appreciate that, folks. Uh, We hope you enjoy the program, and we're we're, we're very appreciative for you tuning in. And you can tune in a lot of different ways, too, can't you? We are multimedia around here at Super Talk. Of course, over the air, a lot of people listen to us through that medium. But you can check us out on the app. We have people all over the country that listen to us on the app, on their browser. I think it's safe to say we have people listening around the world. I think you're right about that. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Because I know of at least one that's not in country right now that listens pretty regularly on the app. Well, uh, we we are so blown away by that. And again, we are so grateful for those that tune in every day and make this deal possible. Because without you, we ain't here. So we appreciate it. Coming up on the program today at 11.05, Jason White. You know who he is. He's a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives. He's the Speaker Pro Tem. Comes from District 48, which I believe includes Atala and maybe some pieces of other counties. He's going to give us an update on what's going on down there under the dome since they've been in session and share his uh, outlook as he sees it for the duration of the 23 session, which is starting to heat up a bit, some legislation coming out. Speaking of which, Josh Hazel, president of the Mississippi chapter of the Tesla Owners Club, coming on at 12.05. You may be aware of this bill, folks, that uh, 
has got a little life in it, HB401. We'll get Josh to give us all the details on that, but just to tease it, as I understand it, haven't dug into it at a, a very granular level to this point, but as I understand it, would prohibit the sale of new vehicles by a manufacturer in the state of Mississippi, either directly or through a manufacturer-owned outlet, retail outlet, store, if you will, dealership, that in fact those vehicles must be sold and offered by a dealership that would be owned by someone other than the manufacturer, the traditional type franchise that you see representing the legacy manufacturers. You're familiar with that. That's pretty much been the model for quite some time. But things are changing, and lots of technology is disrupting the automobile retail industry, as it is virtually every industry. I like to say when I'm out and about speaking, I have a slide where I say every industry is subject to being Ubered or Amazoned. In a, in a verb, as a verb, right? Think about how Uber disrupted. Which that's just an update to getting Netflixed. It's exactly right. Think about how that is disrupting the traditional fee-based television services from the legacy providers, either cable companies or satellite providers. They're getting disrupted pretty severely, as a matter of fact, by the various streaming services, a function of technology, advancements in technology. Here's a little hint. You can't stop it. It is inevitable. It is coming. So we'll be interested to hear what uh, Josh has to say, his thoughts on this bill. I, I get it. I understand why there's there are concerns. I, I personally lived this, by the way, in our industry. It's a long time ago, but when we set up shop in 1986, selling computers, this was not too far removed from the introduction of the very first personal computer, 1981, more commercialized personal computer that didn't require building it by a hobbyist. You could buy kits before that. Zenith, remember those guys used to make televisions? They also offered kits for computers. But you'd have to kind of know what you were doing and be pretty good with a soldering iron to put them together. You couldn't just buy them off the shelf like you can today and turn them on, plug them in, boom, ready to start working. But what we were doing in our industry was met by lots of resistance because it represented the first time not a consumer, because consumers weren't buying computers, but businesses, organizations, were able to purchase computers and software from an outlet other than the manufacturer. You wanted a computer before then, you'd have to call IBM, Data General, Digital, and they would sell it to you directly. And they'd bring in software makers. Sometimes it was their software. Our industry disrupted that. What do you mean you can go down the street and walk in and walk out with a computer. Same thing's happening across the spectrum of industries. Every single industry 
is and will continue to be disrupted. The difference is that will occur at a much more rapid pace because we're able to create new tools. And it's the tools that support all this disruption. Amazon and Uber are a thing because of, I don't know, the Internet, right? And these phones that we all carry around, which use the Internet. That's the whole idea. So tools beget more tools, create more tools, and then people build businesses around these tools. What's the crazy statistic? Something like 43% of all Internet and bandwidth flows through six companies. Oh, yeah. It's like Facebook, Amazon. There's a list of six or seven companies that make up almost a majority of Internet bandwidth. I'm not surprised at that. I have, I haven't, I have done the research on that. It's been a few years, but I think you're right. And, and then you can even drill down further to, underneath those covers, the infrastructure supporting all that, right, is, is in data centers that are operated by a handful of organizations. Which, I mean, in and of itself, the Internet now is nothing like the Internet just a decade ago. No doubt. Especially not like the Internet when it was first getting off the ground with the World Wide Web and that kind of stuff. Yeah. In fact, who could forget when Netscape introduced a graphical user interface to make it user-friendly? Because before that, it was cryptic command line code you had to type in. If you were lucky enough to have something like Prodigy, it was still text-only. Text-only. There were little windows that were full of text. That's true. It was It was kind of simulated windows it wasn't actually separate uh separate code separate programs it was just kind of windows within one piece of code so to speak one platform yeah and then there was america online and that gave rise to these widespread use of message boards and how many times around the world could you stack up the aol discs that were just handed out for free (laughs) or sent to your mailbox that's very true Good grief at the number of AOL discs that went out in the 90s. Steve Case, of course, the founder, CEO of America Online. But, gosh, I I will say, I remember, I was a user, and often just for entertainment, similar to what you do with social media today, which, by the way, I, I look at as more entertainment than anything else. But back in the early days, I remember logging on to AOL and you could have conversations with people all over the world, like you can now on, on modern social media platforms. But you had to be an AOL subscriber back then, which wasn't a lot of money, but that's how you connected. Yeah, there's no more surfing the Internet. <laughs> that's true. Where you just go to a website and then click on a link, and it goes to a website and you click on a link, and it goes to a website and you click on a link, and you're just exploring the vast expanse of the Internet. Without having to know specific IP addresses, which is what you had to do. Before we had browsers that handled all the domain name resolution. Makes it a whole lot easier. We're uh, digressing a bit there, but it's all because we got this bill that I think is, um, I think, telltale, foretells of more disruption coming And I think there will be more objections to that disruption. Coming right back here on Middays in the Element Well Studios. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's do this. On Super Talk Mississippi. Let's do it. 
back in the Element Well Studios with a great Steve Miller band bumping us into this segment here on Midday. So, the government up there in Washington is run out of money. Well, not really. They just hit the debt ceiling of $31.4 trillion. They maxed out their credit card. That's exactly right. <laughs> either got to call MasterCard and beg for an increase in their limit, or they're going to have to do with less. <laughs> well, let me tell you, though, have no fear, because that <laughs> Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, they, I, I told you, they had to pull her away. She's it's somewhere. the first time she's been worried about dollars and cents since <laughs> she got the job. Because heretofore, it's all been about equity and climate change. Yeah, those are critical issues for the Treasury Secretary, like Mayor Pete Buttigieg. He came out of some protest somewhere over a bridge that was inequitable to address the TSA situation. We're going to investigate it. Why did, not the TSA, the, um, oh, shoot, the... Uh, NOTAM. Yeah, the NOTAM system that failed. <laughs> The uh, FAA, FAA was the word I was looking for. So the NOTAM system failed, shutting down air travel in the country. Well, now we have a valuable data point for this point in time, which is a data point. It's like he's got his talking points from Kamala Harris. <laughs> We're going to investigate it. Oh, great. Just what? That'll get it. Mayor Pete's all over it. We're going to investigate what happened here. Hmm. Shut the whole dang system down. Well, because you're too worried about equity and climate change, roads and bridges that are contributing to racism. (laughs) Unbelievable. So we got Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says that uh, she's taking extraordinary (laughs) measures to ensure that the government stays open. She says, quote, I respectfully urge Congress to act promptly to protect the full faith and credit of the United States. Well, that's profound there, isn't it? 31.4 trillion. So what happens here is that it doesn't mean the government can't pay its bills because they've got cash on hand to do so and previously encumbered debt that they can draw on to do so. It just means they can't borrow any more until Congress resolves this. Now, these extraordinary measures, which include relying on uh, that money which is tucked away that we discussed, that is expected, however, to run out sometime May, June. So they've got some dough stockpiled, tucked away for these situations, but that's about good through May to June time frame is what the Treasury is estimating. I think my favorite representation of it came from CBS News, where the headline was, The U.S. has hit its debt ceiling, kicking off a months-long countdown to a possible government default. <laughs> a months-long countdown. Okay. Got it. Well, so, of course, you know, Republicans in the House say we're not going to sign off on increasing the debt ceiling without some cuts 
in spending paired with it. Just simple as that. That seems pretty reasonable to me. The Washington Post, no, pardon me, the New York Times, (laughs) they published an article yesterday, quote, you don't negotiate with these kinds of people, talking about the Republicans in the House, and got uh, this particular article, by the way, has a bit of a connection to Mississippi and that there is a photo of Republicans gathered around McCarthy. This looks like, I believe, right after he was elected speaker. This photo does, right? And in the picture happens to be Representative Trent Kelly. He is among those. Lauren Boebert is in it. Looks like the lion George Santos is in it as Bad well. Guy. Yeah. And I see, by the way, now I look, I scroll further. Congressman Michael Guest also in the view here. And Congressman Matt Gates shown as well with Speaker McCarthy, now uh, Speaker McCarthy. So the <laughs> New York Times says you can't negotiate with these people. They want to cut spending. We can't do that. Unbelievable. Uh, mm, mm, mm. We have grifters in our midst, (laughs) Representative Dan Crenshaw told the Texas Liberty Alliance. Oh, gosh. Extremism coming from Republicans is what the New York Times says. Ah, uh, yes, the extremist view of fiscal responsibility. <laughs> That's extremism. That's MAGA Republicans. Oh, God. How out of touch do you have to be that that's an extreme ideal? <laughs> the Washington Post says, the debt limit is really what filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock used to call a MacGuffin, a device used to propel the plot forward, even though it may be meaningless. A MacGuffin. That's what it is. Congress instituted, by the way, the debt limit in 1917. That was during World War I. And it was implemented so that it could stop having to approve every single spending request by the Treasury, but still have some degree of control over spending. How'd that work out, by the way, since 1917? We... We we got thirty one point four trillion in debt, even with a, a debt limit requirement to at least increase the debt limit to the next level to continue to borrow money. That didn't work out too well. We've accumulated thirty one point four trillion. So of course the Democrats are saying the Republicans want to cut your Social Security and Medicare mandatory spending. Yeah, I mean, it's a, that's right out of the old playbook there. And I'm fairly certain Slick Willie used that against H.W. Did, yeah. So discretionary spending, which, again, is still a relatively small part of the overall spending, overall budget, it's about 30%. That's what was just approved, the $1.7 trillion omnibus bill. What is really amazing, folks, if you if you really want to sit and think in terms of pre-COVID, post-COVID. So in the year pre-COVID, 2019, $4.3 trillion 
is what we spent. Overall, that's combined, mandatory, discretionary, federal spending, 4.3. 6.3 is this year's budget. 6.3. Two trillion in five years. And expected to produce a $1.5 trillion deficit. And the president is absolutely patting himself on the back about that. He's boasting about that. So is Nancy Pelosi, as we read the other day. Now, I will say this. McCarthy did make a claim. We, we aspire to be fair here and share with you the facts. He made a claim, he said, during the eight years that Republican last controlled Congress, 2010 to 2018, remember, it flipped in the midterms while Barack Obama was president. That would be 2010. Republicans maintained control through 18. He said discretionary spending didn't increase at all. Then when the Democrats took over in 2019, spending went through the roof. That's actually not true. It's not accurate. And did a little research on that to look at total discretionary spending. And it's it, what's true is that Republicans bumped it, started increasing it, uh, in 2018, it went to one. It went from one two six one trillion in 18 to 19. Went to one three three seven in 20. Of course, COVID year, they had total control. One point six trillion of discretionary spending. So he's actually not accurate uh, in his statement there in his declaration. It's uh, not not actually true, but nonetheless, that's where we are today, and we are looking at a $1.7 trillion discretionary spending figure for this year. We're coming right back. we got to talk about this bill, the Senate down there, the legislature is thinking about, there's several actually, to address the health care situation in Mississippi. Middays will return. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Don't forget Jason White, Speaker Pro Tim. On middays at 11.05 in the Element Well Studios, Josh Hazel, president of the Mississippi chapter of the Tesla Owners Club, at 12.05. So the Dow down today, second day in a row, the, the combination of yesterday's loss and today's to this point puts you near 1,000 points down. The news on inflation, actually a bit cheery, meaning that inflation seems to be moderating a bit. But now all kinds of signals from from the business community, corporate America, that they're facing some economic headwinds. 
Microsoft, you saw, laid off 10,000 yesterday. Salesforce laying off people. Goldman Sachs laid off people. And there were a lot of folks at Goldman Sachs not too crazy about the way the big Wall Street bank handled that, the way they communicated with them. They felt like was uh, a bit indifferent. I don't know if there is a great way to tell somebody that you're out of work, but there's been some backlash there. It's rather interesting to see. So, and then their numbers came in below expectations. Banks have been reporting the last few days. Some are in line. Most are missing their numbers. And then housing information also shows a sharp decline going on there in that industry. And that affects so much, of course, because you, when you have new houses and and a turnover of houses, you move from one to another, generally speaking, both of the residents, they're going to buy stuff to put in it. So it has lots of other downstream effect, connected effect. And so there's lots of concerns on Wall Street. That's why we got all the indexes in the red again today. Interest rates not really seeing any indication from the Fed that they'll start to reverse, <laughs> go in reverse on their hiking of interest rates. In fact, most believe they got at least another half a point coming, maybe three quarters, and then they're going to sit there for a while and see how that impacts inflation. The goal being, of course, to bring it down, and they want to see more people out of work which is just nuts. Meanwhile, over there in Davos, Switzerland, the savants at the World Economic Forum are busy figuring out how you should live your life. That's pretty much what they're doing. You got the likes of Al Gore. Oh, geez. John Kerry. That's who you want to listen to when it comes to how you should conduct your life. Like a hundred private planes at the airport. Good old lockbox and flip-flops themselves. <laughs> and let's be honest, there are a lot of private jets, small jets, that can't make the trip across the ocean. So these are big private planes. These are the $40, $50 million variety to be able to make that trip. Have they no shame? No. Are we to take them seriously? No. Well, John Kerry, we got some sound from old John yesterday. Here's what he had to say to you. And when you stop and think about it, it's pretty extraordinary that we, select group of human beings, because of whatever touched us at some point in our lives, are able to sit in a room and come together and uh, actually talk about saving the planet. I mean, it's so almost extraterrestrial to think about, quote, saving the planet. If you said that to most people, most people, they think you're just a crazy, tree-hugging, lefty, liberal, yes, you know, you are. or whatever, and, and there's no relationship. But really, that's where we are. <laughs> extraterrestrial? That would be a great description of you. 
I'm not sure you're from the planet. I no, don't start that because in the tinfoil hat, Greg will be starting talking about lizard people. <laughs> That's true. Uh, on the ceasefire text line, Tim in New Jersey wants us to know he's listening from New Jersey. Appreciate that, Tim. That to our point that all this technology it has, has allowed our program, our voices to be heard anywhere on the planet. Pretty cool. Really appreciate that too. I don't think Ben from Madison chimes in on this uh, situation, this bill that would prohibit manufacturers of vehicles from selling in the state of Mississippi directly or or even through a storefront that they would own and operate. says, I don't think it's legal under the Interstate Commerce Clause. I could be wrong. Unfortunately, Amazon, Google, or Apple, all of, all of whom, by the way, are uh, have announced plans to produce vehicles, electric vehicles, would rather just set up in a neighboring state than challenge the law in Mississippi. Could be. We'll find out what Josh Hazel from the Mississippi chapter of the Tesla Owners Club thinks about that. But I hear you, Ben. Why can't they disrupt Democrat (laughs) to our discussion about how technology is is a very disruptive force and it, (laughs) it is reaching its tentacles into every aspect of our lives? I believe in a positive way. If you think about the sorts of disruption that we have witnessed as a result of all these innovations, I think for the most part, it's improved our lives. Now, there are always risks associated with that. There's always downside, nefarious uses that we have to guard against. But I think in, in general, we have been uh, – we've benefited so that's good. Why can't they disrupt Democrat? Man, I don't know. I hear you, though. Yeah, I'm reminded that the WYSIWYG HTML, absolutely, what you see is what you get, the acronym. Oh, yeah. And that I remember when that was common. You don't even hear that anymore, but the, the early days back in the what 90s. About frames? Yeah, frames. Yeah, true. <laughs> that was another interface approach. Ah, the good old days of dial up in 30 minutes per month and don't use the phone while I'm online, says Dan in Hattiesburg. That's true. If you were using dial up, unless you had a separate phone number installed, and you if you were using the same one that serviced your, your voice landline, it's pretty much busy <laughs> when you're on it. And you're dialing up as we did in the early days. Oh, gosh, it's been so long. I don't remember. Was it if you had call waiting, it would kick you off? Or if you didn't have That's call waiting, right. it would it would just blow you off the connection, yeah, right? You'd just be sitting there surfing along. And, Wait, <laughs> what happened? And then the phone ring. Oh, no! I think if you didn't, I want to say if you didn't, is what would cause that. You would be disconnected because the incoming phone call would, would uh, take priority on that line. I remember ICQ, a live chat. Talk to anyone in the world. Yeah. ICQ, AOL Instant Messenger, MSN, all those. All these chat tools. That was a big thing. I totally agree. Debt limit, no problem. They'll crank up the printing presses, I'm sure, says Philip in Walthall County. Except, let's clarify that, Philip. The printing presses uh, don't relieve us from... Uh, incurring debt to receive those dollars printed. That's how we got the debt, was the printing of the dollars. So the the Federal Reserve uh, buys, essentially, 
It prints money and buys debt from the U.S. Treasury, from the government. Hope, hope you're following that. So the Treasury owes the Federal Reserve. That's why the vast majority of that $31 trillion of debt is literally owed to ourselves. And how could that be? Because we printed the money. That's why. So unfortunately, that doesn't really solve the problem either. It just exacerbates it. Oh, yeah, go print more money. Well, you're incurring debt to receive the cash, essentially, on the balance sheet that was printed. Uh, Gary in the Berg wants us to know that researchers claim coffee is contributing to climate change. Let's be honest, Gary. We all know this. What is it? That's why the calls for the end of humanity on the planet. Let's save the planet. I guess for the animals. I reckon. Of course, I'm not even sure. I haven't really thought through this, and I don't understand enough about it. Without humans, I'm not sure that their habitat necessarily improves. I start thinking about if we're not maintaining parts of the planet, some would maybe thrive. Some would would be negatively impacted. I mean, plant life would likely take over the cities if humanity just disappeared, but then that plant life would likely be contaminated with all the microplastics and yeah. petrochemicals and all that fun stuff, so it might harm certain animals. Well, I wonder what Starbucks thinks about this. All these big coffee folks may change their tune on all that stuff, huh? Saving the planet. President Biden could re-implement student loan repayment. That would help. We'll talk about that on Middays, coming right back in the Element Wealth Studios. Are we going to do this? Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Keep rolling. Three, two, one. On Super Talk Mississippi. We are back in the Element Wealth Studios. Go to myelementwealth.com or call 601-957-6006 to let Element Wealth help you find your balance between income, growth, and guarantees. Attended an economic forecast, if you could call it that. I think that's one way to describe it. That was presented by the Element Wealth folks, Jeremy Nelson, of course, who's been on the program many times, did that presentation. That was Tuesday evening. Really enjoyed that. I don't think too many revelations as part of that. It's pretty much in line with what we are all seeing and expecting. I did just see Cross the Wire, however, that um, jobless claims, jobless claims, just came in, and looks like that they were in line with expectations, maybe a little lower than expected. And even though that would be good news, certainly from those that are seeking jobs or that are working and fear being laid off, 
that's not good news to the Fed, who wants people to lose their jobs so they don't have any money to spend to boost inflation. Yeah, I just, I'm looking. Jobless claims uh, unexpectedly fall for the third straight week. So the expectation was if we're increasing the interest rate, that that will really put a hamper on business investment and economic activity because stuff's more expensive to buy as a result, and thus folks would be pushed out of work. That's literally what the Fed wants to see happen. That didn't happen again. So they're going to look at this report and say, "Uh uh-oh, got to keep the foot on the old interest rate gas pedal. So it's actually not good news from an interest rate perspective and a market perspective. Hmm. What else we got here on the ceasefire tax line? Oh, yeah, the student loan repayment. Yeah, that would help from a cash perspective a little, but it actually doesn't help with respect to our debt because that's not debt that the government owns. It's debt that the borrowers own. On the government's balance sheet, that's an asset. It's not a liability. On the borrower's balance sheet, it's a liability. They owe that money. So that actually wouldn't help. Yeah, we just saw this as well. Jerry in Waynesboro reports that Alec Baldwin is going to be charged with involuntary manslaughter. In as the, well as the armorer who uh, provided wow. the weapon and loaded the weapon. Wow. Well, that's stuff I'm sure that's going to get a lot of attention in the news over the next couple of days. I thought I was about to hear Leonard's Losers from back in the day with that music. Which song was that? I believe that would be the Foggy Mountain Breakdown Oh yeah, Earl Scruggs. Leonard's Losers was great. I enjoyed that program. You don't remember that, do you? Vaguely. Yeah. And it was a show that would, I think, air syndicated on the radio. Seems like it was always Thursdays when Leonard would prognosticate the outcomes of uh, lots of the key college football matchups ahead in the uh, approaching Saturday, and he wouldn't he wouldn't pick the winner; <laughs> he would pick the loser, and by how much, I believe. And that that's the name of the program, Leonard's Losers. I think I got that right. William in Greenville says, check out numbers of sex workers there. Talking about Davos, I did see that. Yeah, and there that, was a whole report from some <laughs> high-cost escort talking about $2,500 a night and business is booming. <laughs> booming. Oh, my gosh. That's kind of gross, though, when you think about it, isn't it? So Al Gore, you got him? We, we Al Gore was over there as well, and he was in rare form. <laughs> was Big Al of the land and creating the droughts and melting the ice and raising the sea level and causing these waves of climate refugees predicted to reach one billion in this century? Look at the xenophobic political authoritarian trends that have come from just a few million refugees. What about a billion? We would lose our capacity for self-governance on this world. We have to act. So in answer to your question, I would say we have to have a sense of urgency much greater than we have yet had, and we need have had, and we need to make some changes. 
Xenophobia! <laughs> what I'll say in there, by the way, folks, is that the reason we have this influx of illegals across the border is, of course, because of climate change. That's what he's saying there. He's justifying illegal immigration, and he's trying to sell you on the idea that if you would just address the climate, quit using fossil fuels, no gas stoves, <laughs> now no coffee. <laughs> if you just do that, quit flying in airplanes, oh, except for me, of course, then we wouldn't have all these migrants. Jason White up after the news. Stay with us. And now, and now, the talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. everyone hour two of middays in the element wealth studios on this friday eve got a little chilly after the torrential rains moved through the state last night that was some serious water coming out of the sky there but on the program now it's jason white represents district 48 in the house of representatives as serves as the speaker pro tem of mississippi's house of representatives uh, Representative White, thanks for coming in. Appreciate it, man. Yes, sir, Gerard. Good morning. Good to be with you all. So you uh, guys have been down there under the dome for, we're in, in our third week. We're in our third week. Yeah. That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So how's that been going so far? We've uh, we've, <laughs> had our, we've had our first deadline, which is introduction of bills. Now, the committee deadline is still a... 10 days away and so the the weeping and gnashing of teeth will really start when you know uh, i believe it was les miles at lsu talked about death valley said where dreams go to die that's that first committee deadline is where bills go to die i got you so folks will you know everybody the will will have an attitude once we see what's living and dying after that first committee deadline because that we set a record for for my 12 years in the legislature the House members dropped 1,947 bills, I believe. We only, uh, how we, many? We only reserved the numbers 1 through 1999, <laughs> and then at 2,000, those are Senate bills, 2,000 to 4,000. Okay. So, yeah, I think last year we had about 1,400. So the sausage factory is alive <laughs> and well. We, we may not have 19 good ideas, but I'm, I'm certain we don't have 1,900. <laughs> how many make it through committee? Um, any- we'll, we'll end up with maybe a... If you don't count appropriation and budget bills, yeah. like if you're strictly talking about general law, yeah. maybe a hundred, maybe, maybe not that many. So five percent, maybe, maybe, maybe. Do they just need something to do? Let me go draft a bill. I'll get you that number and text it to you today when I get back to the cap. Okay. But it's a very, very low number. Yeah. yeah. Well, you couldn't take on more at once for floor debate and nope. so forth. Nope. You couldn't nope. do it. Nope. Nope. And some committees, as you know, have just a, a rash of them, and others have very few. That's right. Right? That's right. Depending on, you know, what Depending the – Depending on committee and topics. Yeah. And, and 
where the where the hot debate is of the day and that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So any anything that kind of sticks out as getting a lot of buzz and attention, uh, certainly we've talked about on the program the state of the health care industry in Mississippi is a crisis. It, it is. It is. And, you know, I, and, and that is a legitimate concern. I, I think some folks are using it for political advantage as well, but but I will admit and say we we you know, there's a there's a reckoning coming um for healthcare, not just in Mississippi but nationwide and um politicians have been talking about it for a long time and, 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 and again that may be the problem is that it's politicians talking about it and not people in businesses and taxpayers talking about it enough. So um when I spoke to MEC last week, it was MEC Day at the Capitol last week or week before. Yeah. I use my few little minutes because everything else had already been said that needed to be said about how great MEC was and commended them and that sort of thing. But I challenged them on the health care issue. I was like, this is only going to get solved by businesses in our state whose employees um, are, are hunting and looking for health care. And, and how does that work? Um, we're, we're taking care of the folks who don't make anything in the form of, of Medicaid. Medicaid. That, you know, the, the problem is those folks that are falling somewhere between Medicaid and a wage that they can either afford health insurance or it comes with their employment. And so, and, and I'm not holding Medicaid out to be a great insurance, by the right. way. The health outcomes aren't very good if you look at them. Right. It's better than nothing, but it's not, it's not much more. Well, it, it's you're, an issue. you're right. It's and an so, and I'll say this. In defense of proponents of Medicaid, not that I'm I'm making a statement here in support of it, but while there may be concerns, legitimate concerns about Medicaid, certainly the state's cost of that, uh, just the, the model, the structure in general, you know as well as I do, there's lots of waste, fraud, and abuse in Medicaid, not just in Mississippi, in nationwide, and it takes honestly resources, money to go root that out and correct that. That costs money to just address. But it's also, in my view, not fair to health care providers, to the hospitals, to just say, you guys got to take care of everybody, and by the way, you're not going to get reimbursed for it. That's See right. you. And that, so that's not fair either. That's right. Well, when I hear, you know, I, I come at most of my uh, political analysis from a very conservative side, way sure. from the right. And so I, I hear a lot of my friends who are, you know, think like me on those issues. They're like, Look, they live and die on their own. These hospitals, providers, clinics, all that stuff, it's a business just like my business, you know. And I'm like, well, there's a caveat there. They have to see that pa- that patient shows up at an ER and presents. They've got to see them. Federal law. Federal law. And especially, you know, if they're if they're taking Medicaid from folks that do have it, then that's another even yep. bigger step in, yep. in having to see them. So we've required something of them. So, so we do have a stake in the game, so to speak, to try, if there's a way, um, to make something work. And, and typically the things that the government gets in, we mess up. So, um, Well, something I'm, I wanted tricky. to share with you, uh, Representative White, that I have on all the lawmakers that have been on the program that is kind of flying under the radar, and that's the recent enhancements to the Affordable Care Act that, that actually started, were enacted in the American Rescue Plan, which was passed shortly after Joe Biden was seated. That those provisions recently got extended and became permanent with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act. And what's key there for Mississippi with respect to this question of expanding Medicaid is that able-bodied adults 
can purchase coverage in the exchanges, private coverage, for zero-cost premium if their household income is less than 150% of the federal poverty level, which is actually more generous than Medicaid. That's correct. For the for expansion for able-bodied adults, as you know, is 138%. Right. It seems like we ought to be promoting, ought to be educating. Now, Dr. Edney at Department of Health has texted me on the text line here and said, we are actually doing that now, which they I are. And, yeah. and Commissioner Cheney's trying to promote it. So yes. un- unfortunately, all that gets lumped into the, you know, all the different catchphrases, depending on which side of the political football you're on. And so yeah. um, it's not getting the traction that it should. But no. it, it is there. And in a lot of cases, in a lot of states, it's been very viable and is working. Yes. Well, that it is estimated, depending on who you talk to, that some 200-plus thousand would receive coverage if we expanded Medicaid. That would be able-bodied adults with incomes less than 138% of the federal poverty level. They would qualify. But these same people would qualify for coverage in the exchanges. That's, that's we correct. should be driving them to the exchanges because that costs the state of Mississippi nothing. You are correct. And we're trying to see what we could do from a state policy level to, to okay. push okay. them that way. Okay. You know, that's a federal program. We don't have a lot yeah, of say I understand, in that. I understand. But um, we could spend our money, which wouldn't be a whole lot, to just promote it, to educate. Correct. You are correct. And and we could require that of our hospitals that are struggling as well. Uh, they they should be promoting that when they're dealing with patients that uh, don't have any coverage. You know, you qualify for this. Of course, unfortunately, sometimes it's difficult to find out what a person's income is, what their household income Some is. Some people don't want you to know what it don't is. Don't know. They don't have bank <laughs> accounts. They don't file tax returns. We found right. that out, right, when we That's put right. that, that COVID grant up. That's right. A requirement was you want this money, you you Large need to have percentage. a fund. We didn't have people weren't filing tax returns. That's right. It really came to light, I think, as part of that. Now, the Department of Revenue had, had been telling us about that, but when when we made money available, they, they come out of the woodwork in line to receive that yeah, money. We had requests to tweak the program to, to be able to let those folks in. We're like, uh, Without no. any tax returns? Yeah, we're like, uh, no, we're not going to tweak Well, good. I'm glad we did. I didn't know that. I didn't know folks oh, yeah, had said yeah, that. Yeah, yeah you oh. got to give them the money even though they, yeah. oh, they just don't file tax returns. Right. Which means they're likely receiving their income through non-taxable, non-reported means. They're taxable. They're just not reporting it. They're skirting. They're avoiding. They're evading taxes is what they're doing. Honestly, you're correct. Huge cash economy out there. You know that it is. So we're missing out on that revenue. But they raised their hand for grants from the state without a tax return. Well, we had a lot of them. Well, I think this issue, uh, you know, the one time band aid being proposed in the Senate. What do you think about that? I call it a band aid. So I already kind of checked it in that regard. I mean, we're look we're looking at those and. we want to consider them all. Um, but I, I believe the lieutenant governor even said himself in his statement, it's a short-term fix. And, and you know, we're not looking for a short-term fix. We're, yeah. we're looking for something that, that, you know, would be hopefully long-term sustainable. And, and sustainable yeah. by our state. And, again, what are taxpayers willing to, yeah. willing to do? That's yeah. the question. You don't have to go, do you? No. Okay, no. good. All right, we're going to talk some more. We got uh, Representative Jason White, Speaker Pro Tem of the House, in the Element Well Studios, coming right back.
Middays with Gerard Gibbert. What? What? This is so awesome. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back in the Element Wealth Studios on this Friday Eve. Representative Jason White, the Speaker Pro Tem of the House of Representatives in the Element Wealth Studios. So, hi, so we've, so we've spoken a bit about health care. We'll see all that goes. I haven't seen any proposals out of the House at this point. All the focus has been on these handful of bills from the Senate. What are they talking about in the House? Um, you're going to see some bills similar to the ones that uh, the lieutenant governor talked about. There is okay. a um, the the you're hearing a lot about that community hospital bill or some sort of collaboration and consolidation type yep. thing. Um, a group of community hospitals, and when I say community hospitals, I'm really talking about publicly owned hospitals that are either owned by the county or the state or a, an association, a combination of of um, they're public, they're owned by. The folks in that area, that's right. in some form or fashion, and run by a board that's either appointed by a board of supervisors or a board of aldermen or something like that. Um, there are some large hospitals that that fit that scenario, like Gulfport Memorial, like Forest General, that are that are on the cutting edge. They're vibrant, growing health systems. Not to say they're not experiencing some of the same problems that that other providers are, but 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 they financially are, they're financially yeah. sound and doing and doing a good job yeah. in, in a lot of areas. So. The thought was some of these more progressive ones like that that are doing well or doing okay could could team up with some of these other community hospitals around them in sort of a satellite fashion and, and, and agree, hey, you're going to get your patient stable and then you're going to send to us. And in exchange, we're going to help prop you up and, and uh, yeah. you know, kind of uh, – Makes sense. Yeah, Senator get through Philly that game. sort of thing. There's some issues with antitrust law surrounding that that have to be dealt with, you okay. know, because you're now you're getting into a scenario where you're controlling a large area or market and you're the only player in town. So uh, we got to be careful about that. And I try to look at some of that legislation. And, and, and the House has a bill, and the Senate has a bill as well. Um, and lots of smart lawyers have worked on all of that, you know. But again, the question is. What are the taxpayers, what are the residents of Mississippi going to expect and require with regards to their health care system, and what role do they want government to play in that? And and that, especially now you're talking about publicly owned hospitals. Mm-hmm. So you're not even just talking about delivery of care. You're talking about delivery of care by, by a facility that's owned by taxpayers ultimately. So um, – those are complex arguments and, and arguments with lots of feelings attached because of – in most areas of Mississippi, um, the hospital is the largest employer. You know, in my district, it's the largest employer. Uh, UMMC here in Jackson, I think, is the largest employer in Hines County. Um, and, and that, you know, that plays out throughout the state. So they swing a big political stick when yeah. it comes to – how your legislator feels about an issue. Yeah. You know, when the local administrator of the hospital goes to see their rep or senator, they take that meeting and they listen to what he or she has to say. Now, again, what role are we going to play and, and what are taxpayers going to be willing to be on the hook for when it comes to supplementing um, 
a changing healthcare landscape. Um, I do think there's probably some some right sizing that's going to have to take place in the form of, um, you know, you know, every town may not need a 40 bed hospital like we built in the 40s and 50s. You know, and, and a lot of that stuff was built with government money. Yeah. Um, it's 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 a tricky tricky deal. It's um, disruption and it's uh, disruption from what has been entrenched. Uh, tradition, honestly, legacy for a very long period of time, and it's just hard to. There's lots of resistance to that change, but it's being necessitated by financial realities, and I think we have to face up to that. So, one of the, for the benefit of our listeners, one of the bills proposed in the Senate, uh, sponsored by Senator Blackwell from South Haven, is just a flat eighty million dollar grant that would uh, f- fund distribute funds to hospitals based on a formula. I haven't dug into the details. The formula is based on census types of service bed provided. Bed census, bed count census, yeah. Stuff. So, but $80 million is is a, a Band-Aid. Heck, Greenwood LaFleur, their audited financial statements uh, reflect that they lost $21 million last year. They're a fourth of that by themselves just right. to get to break even. That's right. Well, we got far more. Uh, than GLH that are experiencing financial difficulties in the state. So I'm not sure that that's a wise program there, just to put up a grant program and, hey, here's a little money to kind of tide you over for a short period of time. That doesn't address the fundamental problem. Now, if there's some plan to then build on that while we get you stable for a short period of time, might be able to understand that. Right. I, I think if it came with a long-term plan yeah. and there was a way you could see a little light you know, at the end of the tunnel, that was different. That might be different. And, you know, the pandemic came along and exposed this and maybe sped this up a little bit in the form of it, it exposed another area that we hadn't talked about today, and that is a shortage of health care workers, specifically nurses and doctors. Um you know, and and that issue continues to haunt us here in Mississippi. We we did a lot last year with ARPA funds to try to beef up our nursing programs around the state, on the community college as well as the senior college front. But that takes time, um, just like so many of these other things do. So we won't see relief from that for still a few years in the forms of expanded nursing classes. Got to hire professors if you're yeah. going to expand classes. Where do those those people don't just fall out of the well, sky? Well, I've actually heard anecdotally about cancellation of nursing classes here recently because they couldn't get the instructors. That's correct. That's right. That's right. And hey, how are you going to hire a professor at fifty, sixty thousand a year when they can travel around and nurse a little? You know, do a, do a travel nurse deal and make a hundred and twenty five yeah. or one hundred and fifty thousand. Yeah. yeah. Um, and again, the pandemic exposed a lot of that shortage and. Um, you know, people are much more transient and able to pick up and move and that sort of thing. Whereas, you know, folks set up roots and they were where they were 30 years ago. That's not the case now. Some of the large hospitals in the metro area here are total contract now for their nursing. That's right. They, they can't hire people That's full right. time. And, of course, that uh, comes at a premium from a cost perspective when you're paying a third-party contractor for that. But they got no other choice at this point. So... Yeah, it's com- it's a complicated matter. Okay, so the speaker was in a couple of weeks ago and and declared that uh, elimination of the income tax remains his top priority. What do you think? It is. Um, it is still his top priority. Um, 
anytime I meet with he and Trey Lamar and they're both in the room with me, that's all we talk about. <laughs> uh, between the two of them, you know, he was on last week they're, discussing they're, it. Of course, they're, they're still after it as they should be. Yeah. It, it is a, it is a lofty goal, but it is an achievable goal now for us, and you can, we can kind of you, you can look out there and see that in the form of the revenues that we're bringing in and what we're spending on recurring expenses in state government. We're going to run a surplus of over a billion dollars again this year. I will also admit we've got some big problems in state government in our in our mental health and our DHS and in our corrections that need fixing. I'm not trying to gloss over those. So, and it's going to take money to fix those problems. But we've got money to fix those problems. We need to get our priorities right, fix those things. But at the same time, there is a path to getting out of the income tax business and, and stopping the penalty on work that we continue um, to have. And and it would you know, speaker would love to. You know, take one more bite at that apple. You yeah. know, here in his last session. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, so are we going to see some bills filed to that effect? I, I think you'll see a bill filed. Um, as you know, you've I've y'all have had the lieutenant governor on, and he's yep. talked about the Senate's tax rebate proposal, yep. which I believe is give or take around two hundred fifty million dollars. Um, we would like to we we like the idea that the Senate's on board with some additional tax cuts. We would just rather see those permanent in the form of. Let's either take another half percent or percent off. You know, we're going to be a 4% flat tax at the end of this four-year phase in. We'd like to go ahead and add a paragraph to that bill and take us to three and a half or 3% over another year to make that a five- or six-year plan if that's what we need to do. Or if you don't like that idea, let's just go ahead and speed up this four-year plan and, and whack about half of it getting to 4%, and we'll get to 4% quicker. We'll get there in a year or two instead of four years. So... I think it's good that the Senate um, is on board with some additional tax cuts. I think we just disagree on we want something more permanent and and um, structured and not just a one-time rebate that looks like a gimmick in a uh, election year to send somebody a check. Yeah, and, and, I, and I've heard that buzz year. as well. There's some concern that this may just be political in nature and, and really not substantive. It, it looks that way. And, and I, you know, the argument from their side is, well, we don't know what the future is going to hold and inflation and all that. So before we give away the store, we've got the money. Let's just send taxpayers a check. We'll worry about next year, next year. I I just, I would submit to you folks do a whole lot better keeping their money in their pocket instead of us holding it a little while and deciding how much to give back to them. I don't, I don't like the idea of that. I, I appreciate the fact that the lieutenant governor is on board with additional tax cuts, and I think that's a good starting place. Yeah, I totally agree. And so we should point out that uh, your description of getting eventually down to a one uh, bracket 4% flat tax comes based on the legislation enacted last year that's in the correct. last session. That's correct. So. And that's basically a four-year phase in. Yeah. We, we would just go ahead and sp- let's go ahead and speed that up. We got rid of the existing middle four percent bracket. Now we're going to uh, uh, put the uh, the chop to the five percent bracket. Bring it down to four percent income over ten thousand dollars taxable income taxed at the flat four percent rate. That ultimately is what's going to happen at full phase in at the end of year four. That would be what end of happen. year four. Just saying, let's do it after year two. Maybe. You got to go. You can hang around. I can hang around one okay. more. Okay. We got Jason White in the Element Wealth Studio. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi.
Welcome back. Midday Super Talk Mississippi. Representative Jason White in the Element Well studio. So we were just talking about the speaker's goal, and I think yours as well. Representative Lamar sure. certainly ways and means, and many in the House for sure have the goal of full elimination of the income tax. That was a goal set in motion last year. We didn't quite get that across the finish line. We got what I've described as a down payment on elimination, which was significant reduction of taxes in the tax reform bill. But we had a question, you know, is this off the table? It's not. You guys are still working no, it's on not that. It's still a goal. It's, yeah. And it's, it's still a major goal of the House. And, and again, the math works. Um, so it's not it's not a pie-in-the-sky type thing. It's just, you know, there's got to be political will and, and – um, Want to? Yeah. So, and, and I always say, and and voters have to be calling their representatives and senators and demanding it, and and we had some of that. I just I think that plays a key role in it too. Um, you know, voters and taxpayers, you know, folks hear what their constituents tell them and and react. Um, sometimes slower than they should, but um, they react though. They react. They do. No doubt about it. And and the thing, as you well know, is. There are multiple ways of expressing your views to members now that we didn't have. In the old days, you just had to call and leave a message for the most part, but we got lots of different ways With of getting social in touch media with and all that. There changed ways. it. Look, one dynamic I hear more about, you know, the a dollar is a dollar. And when we were trying to cut the income tax and this goal of eliminating it, I get calls from from taxpayers and constituents all the time and say, Jason, I'm not worried about the income tax. Get me some help on my car tag, and I'm like, yeah, I know it's the same dollar one way or another. But right. um, I don't it, get that either. It's just, uh, but I mean, it is real. I it have, is. I it have is have real. Folks stop me and say, look, I don't care about that income tax. I don't feel that. I feel it when I go write that check for that car tag, and so, you know, and then some folks holler about the grocery tax, and and all of those are things that we need to be looking at um, as a state and how we generate the income that the state runs off of. I just. Um, I thought the first place to start is the money we take from folks when they go to work. And so while we can, um, I think it's a worthy goal. That's certainly the most uh, conservative approach to taxation and and generation of revenue uh, has been thought so in conservative enclaves for decades that taxing production, taxing income is far less efficient than taxing consumption. With respect to the car tags, as you know, most of that goes to counties. I mean, that's how they run right. their shop. That's right. Property taxes and ad valorem taxes on, on car tags, and some of that goes to the municipalities as well. And with respect to the grocery taxes, and, and we have a regular listener, Mose, that uh, asks again and has uh, rather frequently about how about just reducing the grocery tax to protect the municipalities since a lot of small towns get the majority of their revenue from the sales tax levied on groceries since those are the main retailers and all of their revenue virtually comes from sales taxes. The problem with that, uh, before I turn it over to you, is that, well, we need that revenue if we're going to eliminate the income tax. So we could certainly cut the grocery tax but we until we do some some uh, I guess modeling there if we're going to do full elimination of the income tax our primary source of revenue is going to be sales taxes so that's a possible issue there it's it's if you eliminate the income tax it is the primary will be um, sales tax yeah. or consumption tax of, of all different whether yeah. it's use tax sales tax all the different things um, and in the, as you as you note and in the areas that I represent, um, 
the grocery tax is the main generator of income for our local municipal governments in in the area that I represented in most areas of the state. That yep. is, you know, the grocery store and or the Walmart is the is the largest sales tax generator, and the city receives a portion back. You know that. That seven percent gets sent into the state, and then the the municipality, the state sends the municipality their portion back, and that's what most of municipal government in Mississippi is funded from is that sales tax diversion. So, if right. you st- if you start lowering that grocery tax, you're going to have to figure out a way. Number one, to absorb it as a state, but number two, it's almost a double hit because you've got to figure out how municipal governments are going to be quote made whole or how they're going to fund you know there's the services that taxpayers have expected them to provide yeah it's a, and it gets a little dicey there because in the smaller municipalities typically it it uh it is it's grocery sale of groceries sure. that generates most of that tax and that's where their revenue uh, comes from but uh, I would I would submit to you, um, Jason, that maybe the reason a lot of folks have this just aversion to that that car tag is that it is a one time hit that they got to dig in for. But rather, uh, as compared to I should say, uh, income tax. Generally speaking, you're getting paid by an employer. And that's being deducted, and you just don't notice it. And then you do your your tax return, and it's pretty even, or you may get a slight refund, maybe owe a little bit. But hitting that hip every year uh, for that car tag, you just notice that. It's and it's un- an unusual annual event, so to speak. They feel it. They yeah. feel it. Whereas that deduction, it's just a it's on the check stub, and they don't see it. Maybe you know. Maybe that speaks to our humanness and how we've been conditioned. <laughs> it's human nature. We've no been doubt. conditioned to it, but um, boy, they car tag is an issue. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about the citizen uh, ballot initiative. That was one of the uh, sort of high priority. Uh, issues that didn't get across the finish line last year. We had measures in both houses, didn't get anything done. It did not. And and we have continued um, the the Senate continues to want a fairly high threshold signatures um, signatures required to place an initiative on the ballot. We we both both chambers agree on the fact that it won't be constitutional in nature the initiative it will be just go into statute whatever the issue is. Um so so that's good, and both measures that were passed last year in each chamber had that. The issue was the threshold. Is it going to be a percentage of registered voters, um, a percentage of folks that vote in the last election, a, a percentage of voters that voted in what election, the last gubernatorial election, the last presidential election? And so, um, you know, what percentage of Mississippians should be required um, to place something on the ballot statewide that would go into state law? Um Anywhere from 100,000 to 250,000. I mean, I've heard every... Well, that's what we have now, right? We had 100... Roughly, it works out to 106,000, right, I think. Right, about in the 110. House. That's right. Okay, that's and right. then in the Senate, was virtually double that. About 240, that's right. And I think you're going to see us maybe settle somewhere in the middle of that. Maybe, okay. Maybe 175, and, and let's do the deal. You think we can get an agreement there? I think we can get an agreement there. And the other thing is, it gets passed. Somebody says, well, if it's statute, the legislature will just come in and change it the next year. We're going to do a two- or three-year hands-off so that it couldn't be tweaked um, and, and somebody's will couldn't be trumped that if they got their initiative passed. And that was um, included in the House bill last year, wasn't it? That's correct. Some provision of that effect. It was. Yeah. It was. And it there were some, some other provisions to protect some measure that would just gut our revenue. There were some protections right. against that. That's yeah, right. we're going to put a measure out there that just eliminates all taxes altogether. Lot, lots of thought and has gone into it, and I hope we're a lot closer. There seems to be a little bit of movement on that issue, and hopefully we can get something done there. Yeah. 
All right, what about allocation of the remaining tranche of money we got in the American Rescue Plan? That's something you guys got to handle as well, right? Yes. Uh, we, we, we didn't spend about $300 million last year. And then, as you know, the governor vetoed about $50 million that was spent. So we've got about $350 million to spend. I think you'll see some most of that go into existing programs that we set up last year, mainly water and sewer and, and rural water associations, because those were, you know, Wildly popular and lots of applications, and um, that money is finally starting to, to – applications are finally starting to be processed and the money go out. So I think you'll see us plus up some of those, hopefully, and then um, the rest of it we'll see. There's lots of talk about incentivizing nursing programs that we talked about earlier, um, uh, medical school programs, as well as um, some sort of something for hospitals and providers um, that we've already talked about. So I don't know if some of that money will go to there, if it will go to something else. But um, those are all – There's the tourism stuff was very popular last year. We spent ARPA money on that. They want to do that again this year. And I I yeah. don't know where we are. We the House and Senate, I think, both have bills that would that would um, send money to support uh, those tourism endeavors throughout the state. Um, advertising mainly about yeah stuff going on here. Well, I know that Senator Parks from uh, Corinth uh, has a bill in the Senate that would provide nursing students grants, and uh, I think six thousand dollars per year for a maximum of three years towards the repayment of student loans. But it just seems to me like we need some way to get instructors. So to fund at a market rate people that could come in and train folks to be nurses. That's right. And and we had conversations last week with our IHL folks and our junior college folks about how can we do that. We did. We spent a bunch of money last year beefing up nursing programs at Heinz, at Holmes, uh, Northwest. I can't remember all the ones. to expand their capacity, and they talked about the need for instructors. And so we're like, all right, here we are. What can we do to do that? Okay. So it's a complex, uh, long okay. pipeline type thing. All right. Representative Jason White has been our guest. Appreciate you coming in. Always good to see you, Thank sir. you, Gerard. Yep. Good to be here. We'll be right back in the Element Well Studios. Please stay with us. You're not the one for me. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. All right, we are back on Super Talk Mississippi. Folks call me Maverick. Yes, I ain't too diplomatic. I just never the great Garth Brooks. We are back in the Element Well Studios. Watching the markets, not looking real good. Microsoft is hosting a Sting concert before they announce layoffs. Huh? You hear Mike this? could have saved some of those jobs if you weren't forking over for Sting to sing before you <laughs> announced the layoffs. That's, that's what they say has bad optics, doesn't it? Uh, but if the stock is down today, I believe, four bucks. Jeez, not really good. Uh, so Donald in Oxford, who asked about full elimination of the income tax, wanted to know, is that off the table? Hope you heard, Donald. No, it's definitely not, and it remains 
a top priority over in the House of Representatives do not get that same uh, feeling out of the Senate. They're more inclined to uh, just pay a one-time rebate out to taxpayers in the state of Mississippi as opposed to a permanent phasing out of the income tax. Jerry in Pontotoc says, I'm 68 years old and ain't been in debt in years. Used to lose sleep if I owed someone 500 bucks. How the hell do you get $31 trillion in debt? Well, I, it's a good question, Jerry, and I'll just share with you my take on it. And that is, if you think about what the folks in Washington do primarily, is spend money. That's really what they do. And when we send them there, we expect them to bring home the bacon. You go up there and fight for our share. The problem, as we've explained so many times here on the program, and I do believe this is accurate, we got 435 in the House, 100 in the Senate, and all of their constituents say, you go up there and get us some money. Well, that's the the money part of it is the, the part that bothers people on both sides of the political spectrum, but I think if you drill down and look for the truth of where money has negatively impacted our Congress, our governance, is it requires an insane amount of money just to even consider running for that office, let alone winning that office. No doubt. So you come from a disconnect when it comes to the layperson and their understanding of money, and that's just compounded by the fact that they get up there and they're they're expecting to get to spend all this tax money on stuff like remodeling and redecorating their office. No doubt about it. And and so if you if you consider this, when they then get ready to run for reelection, they'll tout all that money they brought home. They'll brag about it. Look what I brought you. We wouldn't have this. We wouldn't have that. We wouldn't have this. Well, that's all great, except what we have in exchange for that is $31 trillion in debt. I mean, there's nothing noble about spending money that you print, that you borrow with no intention of ever paying it back, which is fueling inflation. there's, There's nothing innovative or creative. There's no accomplishment associated with that. You didn't do anything. It's not like, look at all this revenue we we created, and then you spend it and invest it. No, that's not what we're doing. That's why we have these $1.5 trillion deficits. It truly is unbelievable. Then that's not to say that that debt is not a valuable tool. It absolutely is. I I mean, I built a business uh, by acquiring companies with cash flow debt, and that was significant amount of money at ridiculous interest rates because it was unsecured. But that was the risk we took. It's risk reward. Paid every penny of it back and produced considerable value using that capital. Car tag purchase a significant emotional event. <laughs> oh, Jeff and Grenada says, I truly do believe that that's the main distinction there though, Rhino, is that you don't notice it as much when it's just a you know a relatively small amount of money coming out of your paycheck every pay period, and especially for folks who get paid on a, on a more frequent basis, your weekly payroll, biweekly, semi-monthly, you just don't notice it as much. But then when you got to go buy that car tag, 
it's it's that sort of one-time, unexpected lump sum. You got to shell out, and it's it's um, not already been withdrawn, so to speak, as a deduction from your gross pay. And I, I do think that's why that is just something people don't obviously enjoy. I don't know that we have a way to to pay for that on a continuous basis, so that you don't don't have. You don't face that one-time bill you get in the mail, that notice from the tax collector, hey, you owe for your car tag, and you're not getting any stickers to put on your car unless you pay it, right? That's the way that works. Ask him about, oh, yeah, yeah, so on the ceasefire tax line, yeah, we, uh, we made it a point to ask everyone from the legislature or statewide leaders about the ballot initiative. I feel like that most folks out there in the state believe that's unfinished business, and they'd like to see some resolution there, given that the Supreme Court struck down the present ballot initiative process as part of the Initiative 65 case brought before them. So we'll continue to ask members of the legislature about that, see where they stand. Hopefully we'll get something done. Coming back after the news with Josh Hazel, president of the Tesla Owners Club of the Mississippi Chapter. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Rocking into the afternoon portion of Middays on Super Talk Mississippi. Joining us now, Josh Hazel. The president of the Mississippi chapter of the Tesla Tesla Owners Club. Appreciate you coming on, Josh. Welcome to Middays. Hey, good afternoon. Thanks, Gerard. I appreciate it. All right. So, give us the uh, the information. Give us an overview of this House Bill four zero one and uh, what it is designed to achieve. Right. So uh, same same bill, new year. Right. Uh, same thing. Uh, tried they tried to pull last year. Uh, the the uh, ultimate goal of the bill is to prevent manufacturers such as Tesla uh, and Rivian and Lucid from being able to sell in uh, Mississippi, being able to set up dealerships uh, throughout the state and uh, and sell. It would grandfather the one location that Tesla has now, but would not allow them to open up any more uh, locations in the state. Okay, so that that's, I appreciate you clarifying that. Uh, when I first looked at this bill and and just uh, browsed at it, uh, it I, I didn't really understand what it was attempting to do that's different than what is in place now, but obviously Tesla has an outlet there in Rankin County. It's, it's visible uh, from I-20 there. And so I assumed that that was owned and operated by Tesla, corporate, by the corporation. I don't, I don't believe that that is like an independently owned dealership that is franchised from Tesla. Rather, it is owned by Tesla. And as I recall, there, there are no vehicles for sale on the lot, but you, there are demonstrator models that, that uh, prospective buyer 
can test drive and then place an order, which would be delivered then back to that location. And it also provides service capabilities as well. So, but this law, so that was allowed under present law. Tesla would could not sell directly to consumers without having a physical presence, a physical store, if you will, retail outlet in the state to do so under present law. This takes that a step further, as I understand it. And I'm, I'm phrasing this as a, posing it as a question here, Josh, that this would not even allow that situation. A manufacturer could only sell their products through a dealership owned by a third party, more consistent with the legacy model where the uh, the mainstream sort of legacy manufacturers have have uh, they franchise their outlets, these dealerships, to independent owners. This would not even allow that or, or would require that of these manufacturers. Have to sell them through independently owned outlets. Couldn't set up their own corporate-owned stores like we've seen in Brandon. Go. Right. That's exactly right. It is designed to add a middleman to that buying process and delivery process. So it would have to go through a third-party uh, entity okay. in the state. And, be, uh, and legacy was the right word. It, the legacy buying uh, process that we have with dealerships, uh, it, that's what they're trying to protect. <clears throat> okay. So that would force, if, if uh, a manufacturer uh, springs up, of course, no secret, there are a lot of uh, companies Companies that, that aren't traditionally known as being in the automaking business that are talking about producing and offering vehicles for sale. Apple comes to mind. They're making enormous investments, and they plan to introduce a vehicle what in a couple of years. It's not too far out. So right. under- they, yeah, and they've been they've been research uh, you know R and D for uh, several years now. Yeah. And, uh, and and they're going to do something. And, and it's interesting you brought up the Apple model. So iPhones. You know, you you can buy an iPhone online. You can pick out the colors, the configuration, have it shipped to your house. You can have it shipped to an Apple-owned store in the state, you know, right up there, uh, Renaissance Mall. Uh, or you can, you know, pick it up at Best Buy, a, a third-party entity. Same concept, uh, you know, uh, where you have a, a, a manufacturer-owned store that you can purchase through pickup, delivery, service, uh, but also uh, a third-party entity, uh, you know, Target, Best Buy, Walmart, that you can walk in and buy that same product. Same same kind of concept. You know, it really it boils down to the the freedom of choice for consumers of how they want to buy their vehicles and and where they want to buy their their vehicles. Yes, and, and the the concerted effort to to add more government into this process is just mind-boggling. You know, it's innovative process. Uh, that, that we're squashing here. So the iPhone analogy that you uh, so eloquently described there, Josh, would be referred to as multiple routes to market. And that literally is the terminology. It's called RTM, route to market. And so what you described is is completely accurate. There are multiple routes to market for a consumer to acquire an iPhone. Uh, some are through uh, some buy through corporate-owned stores not far from my location here. Uh, there's an Apple store, and then some are through the telecom, the wireless service providers, or they could go to traditional retailers such as Best Buy, or even buy uh, online remotely. Uh, all, all that is available. 
So uh, it, with respect to the car, uh, this law here, though, with respect to selling vehicles, this this sounds to me like they're they're restricting the route to market. That it has to flow through an independently owned dealership that has a physical presence inside the state of Mississippi. Uh, is Apple planning to authorize and franchise uh, dealerships to sell their vehicles? Because at this point, Tesla doesn't do that. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, they they are direct to sale, direct to consumer sales, uh, and and I assume Apple would want to go that same path. I I can't imagine, you know, as efficient of an operation as they are. I cannot imagine them wanting to add layers. Uh, to to their distribution, you know, unnecessary layers. Yeah, and it's certainly not like there's uh, there isn't technology available where a person could uh, configure their vehicle exactly like they want it and hit the button and arrange for the financing and and uh, complete the sale and have it shipped to them. I mean, you can do that with the legacy manufacturers now for the most part. You just have to go pick it up and and transact that purchase, complete that purchase with a local dealer or a dealer of choice. Right. It doesn't necessarily have to be local, but it has to be a dealer in, in, in the state of Mississippi. Um, this just seems to me like something that's inevitable. This is disruption that is, is, is going to impact this industry and many other industries. I'm not sure we can stop it or that we want to stop it, honestly. I think this is just the next evolution in uh, the experience of uh, buying a vehicle. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, I don't, I don't think we want to stop it. I think this is the the evolution of that experience. This is the you know innovative uh, measures coming forward with the electric vehicle market. And, and I think last time last time we talked, uh, the uh, EV sales were about two and a half percent of total U.S. sales. They're they're almost six percent this last year. I mean, it's it's a vast fast growing market and uh and and the writing's on the wall and so i think i think turning business away and, and closing off the state of mississippi to to that market is is just bad business i think it's a it's a horrible idea and i'm surprised to see so many conservatives on board with this bill that that ships jobs to other states it's going to prevent st- jobs from coming to our state and technology and innovation from coming to our state yeah, it's estimated that EV sales will comprise 10% of total uh, unit sales in this coming year. So it, it's growing. Uh, it's growing rather dramatically. I, I guess I also have concerns, and, and, and maybe I'm, I'm just being, uh, I guess, uh, overly concerned here, that manufacturers such as Apple, new manufacturers coming onto the scene that are going to start producing electric vehicles. Well, Mississippi is, is uh, known... Uh, for the automobile industry. We have a number of automobile plants in the state. I wonder if they start thinking, well, we're not going to go to Mississippi because they're not friendly to our overall business model, and then we lose out on opportunities for these big folks to locate factories here, produce jobs and economic activity. Is that something exactly. you've thought about as well, you guys have thought about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why would you Why would you go to a state that that, that crafts policy against your business model uh, and 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 offer uh, you know economic incentives to that state. You know why would you why would you do that as a business? I mean it just doesn't make sense. So yeah, I think that's a, I think we're setting ourselves up for failure and, and getting behind the curve on the front end of uh, you know a techno- technological shift 
uh, in this market space, in vehicles in general. And I think we're, we're setting ourselves up to be behind the eight ball right out the gate. Yeah, we're at a competitive disadvantage in so many ways in that respect because this is the way it's going, and, and Mississippi is not going to change that. Uh, our laws here aren't going to change the, the, the broader shift in the industry. Josh, appreciate you coming on and uh, explaining that to us, and we'll be tracking this legislation, as I know you guys will be as well. Thanks a lot. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. We'll step aside for a break here on Middays. We're coming right back in the Element Wealth Studios. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Now, on to the real part. On Super Talk Mississippi. Back with you in the Element Wealth Studios, middays on this Friday Eve. Well, that old debt ceiling, it's just moving right along. We are at it. We can't borrow no more money until the Congress fixes it. But old Janet Yellen, she's all over us. She's taking, quote, extraordinary measures. She wants you to know that. And some of those extraordinary measures include suspending new investments in the civil service retirement, the disability fund, and the postal service retiree health benefits fund. That's a mouthful. So it it doesn't mean the benefits are suspended being paid by those programs. It just means that we're not going to put any more money in those programs for future benefits until we fix the the debt ceiling, and then we're going to catch it up. Now, on the ceasefire text line, it was pointed out that a big chunk of our debt was run up during the Trump era. That's absolutely true. And that is primarily a function of the COVID. He was running deficits uh, in his first three years, two and a half years, in the $900 billion range, which is nothing to sneeze at. But it was 2020 is when we generated the biggest deficit in our history and added more to the debt as a result than any other year in the history of these great United States, about $5 trillion. We were sitting at about $22 trillion going into uh, 2020, and by the end of 2020 fiscal year, our debt stood at roughly $28 trillion. And that's because of the CARES Act and the Families First Coronavirus Relief Act. Those combined for 
about four trillion, and then we had our our uh, our deficit produced as a result of standard spending and revenue. It's around one trillion. There you go. You got five trillion. That's absolutely true. And virtually every Republican and Democrat and both chambers supported these measures because we were all told by the scientists, you can't be around other people. No doubles. (laughs) And now we kind of have learned, "Eh, not so sure that that was necessary. But we all panicked. We hunkered down in our homes. Heck, some countries like New Zealand, right, they wouldn't let you out anywhere. Canceled all flights, terminated all flights. Speaking of New Zealand, there is change on the horizon for the uh, Kiwis. She who put those orders in place is saying, I'm out of here. The so president. Out of gas. Burn out. Out of gas. Is that a prime minister? Yes. Is that the t- yeah. Jacinda, whatever her name is. Yeah. Done. Which they talk about the, the toll that leadership can take on a person. Yep. I mean, you look at pretty much any U.S. president from modern history and look at when they went into office versus when they leave office. No. And there's a, a marked aging in their features. I guess it happens with prime ministers, too, because, wow, <laughs> she really does look Didn't like she's she? burnt out. She did. I mean, she, she. if you look at kind of a before and after, she went from being what I thought was a relatively attractive lady to one that just looked bushed, just totally done. I I think there's no doubt that the, the COVID took it out of all of them, especially – uh, a situation like hers when she implemented probably the most onerous measures of any nation. You couldn't even travel like between towns in New Zealand, as I recall. And they totally suspended any outbound and inbound flights from their, I think they have two international airports, as I recall, Auckland, and I don't remember the other one. But you can't go in or out of the country. And your country's an island. So. Um, you could argue it's a little easier to control the transmission because you don't have um, all of the uh, all the folks coming in and out. Yeah, know? no overland immigration. Yeah, so it's not a transient situation like we have here in in the U.S. But I'm not sure that accomplished anything whatsoever, or if it was necessary. But yeah, they no doubt second maybe only to China with respect to. Their restrictions, I think. It yeah, could. I don't recall seeing any videos out of New Zealand where they were welding people into their apartment <laughs> complexes. That I think that certainly takes the prize as the the most onerous of all. Um, on the ceasefire text line, we had something else here I wanted to get to. Ben from Madison says, "I appreciate your bringing light to this bill, talking about the." the bill that would ban manufacturers of vehicles from selling in the state of Mississippi new vehicles unless those flowed through an independent dealer, says horrible policy, and I hope Mississippians reach out to their reps and senators to stop this anti-free market legislation. I feel like young people in Mississippi hear about this bill and roll their eyes. These types of policies fuel the brain drain. I, I actually agree with you that on that, Ben. Uh, and I think that what we're trying to do here 
is a stopgap measure to the inevitable evolution of this industry, the retail automobile industry, as well as countless others that have all been disrupted. But the disruption has usually, almost all the time, in, in fact, launched whole new industries, greater opportunity, more innovation, more economic activity, because consumers have more choice. And multiple routes to market generally is a good thing. I can't think of too many of any cases where it's not a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, an outlet or a seller should be able to commit some sort of fraud that would violate reasonable consumer protections in that they misrepresented the products, misrepresented the serviceability, the service availability. And I would say this to you, that even if this bill doesn't go through and we allow manufacturers of new vehicles, and for the most part these are new electric vehicles, to sell into Mississippi directly to consumers without the need for a storefront, without the need for a third-party storefront, there still is a large swath of the buying public that's going to want that that traditional, usual experience. doesn't mean that, oh my gosh, everybody's going to start buying cars online, they're not going to go down to the dealer and buy cars anymore. I don't believe that for a minute. I think there are still a lot of people, I would probably put my, myself in that category. I like the experience. I like going to the dealer. I like working with the folks there. I like, I like being sold to. I do. I like um, uh, the ability to speak to somebody face-to-face, get information, test drive, make sure I'm comfortable with the service capabilities and the people involved there. I, I like that safety blanket. Some people will say, no, I'm fine without it. And that's fine. That's multiple routes to market. I would say the, the divide is probably a generational divide. It could be. I agree. There's no doubt that, that the younger generations are going to be, already are, more comfortable with uh, consuming transactions, no matter what they're buying, without that face-to-face personal experience. I totally agree with you. So basically, this bill would be like writing a bill demanding that stores have a majority of checkers and limit the use of self-checkout. Kind of. That's a good analogy. Totally agree. Which, if you divided that on generational lines, you'd have a lot of people of the older generation be like, yeah, I'm so sick and tired of self-checkout. I don't work for the grocery store. I agree with you. But, you know, um, maybe it's because I had a career in the technology business and I appreciate innovation. I love the self-service checkouts. I'd much rather do that than I would cart my stuff into a line and, and wait for somebody to pull that out of the basket. And I'm also thinking to myself, well, this is helping this organization keep their costs down. And a lot of people look at it the other way. Well, they ought to pay me for doing that, like you said. No, no it's what's helped keep their costs down. We all, we all gripe about that. I got into a bit of an online exchange conflict. I shouldn't even call it a conflict. It, conflict. it was just a, a spirited debate. How about that? On, on health care and uh, how to pay for health care. 
And the subject of Walmart came up. We'll be right back on the Element in the Element Well Studios on midday. Stay with us. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. It is on. On Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. Midday, Super Talk Mississippi. We are once again live in the Element Well Studios. That's pretty cool that somebody in New Jersey listening to us, huh? On the app. That's why I played the boss. Ah, absolutely. A a New Jerseyan he is, right? In the E Street Band. In a Mississippi Minute is on today, of course, with Steve Azar. You'll hear an interview with Delta State women's basketball coach Tracy Stewart-Lang. In a Mississippi Minute with Steve Azar is presented by VisitMississippi.org. You can hear the show each Thursday and Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. on most Super Talk Mississippi stations, supertalk.fm, and available everywhere you listen to podcasts. Also, the This Week in Mississippi newsletter. You'll get uh, news stories you need to know from the most powerful name in Mississippi news delivered to your email inbox. Sign up at supertalk.fm slash newsletter. And also, folks, um, I would sure certainly appreciate it if you'd Go over to Supertalk Mississippi website and check out uh, an article that I wrote uh, a couple of days ago. It got put up there, I think, um, Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. And it's uh, just my take on why I think Mississippi is a good place to launch and, and build out a business. And hopefully you'll appreciate uh, what we say there. I think there are a lot of good things that we have to promote about the state is a great place to set up shop. I, I certainly lived that experience myself, and I'm incredibly grateful to a uh, great team and, of course, the good people of Mississippi for being so receptive to our idea and, and our business and and making all that a reality. So hopefully you'll log on and uh, navigate over to the Super Talk website. Take a look. Appreciate that. On the ceasefire text line, it was uh, Gary in the Berg provided a very interesting, some very interesting feedback on our chat with Speaker Pro Tim Jason White. He says, "Excellent discussion this morning. Hope you could get these segments out to business schools, etc., to play for class discussion." This is the type of stuff they don't get to hear. I appreciate that feedback quite a bit there, Gary. I really do. Uh, I I will say that 
anytime I have the opportunity to to address students, young folks, I always, always, always make uh, a point to do that and clear my schedule to do that. I think it is important that they hear from folks outside of their typical teachers and, and academic instructors who are good people in, in doing their work, but getting perspective from... Yeah, academia is very insular, though. No doubt about it. Maybe more protectionist than any other industry, than any other group in the country. More so than politicians. No doubt about it. And I don't know why. It's, it's like there's some sort of insecurity that emanates. Maybe that's it. I, and they're... I, I don't know why they feel that way, and they shouldn't feel that way. It's There's no... You know, we're not trying to encroach bringing somebody in from the outside, for example, to address their students. That's there's no attempt, attempt to to hijack their class or the environment, but just to provide an external perspective from people who are out in the workplace across a, a spectrum of industries, a range of industries that can bring perspective that maybe would be informative, educational, inspirational even. I think that would there there's value in that. And so I'd like to see more academic institutions um, reach out and bring folks in from the outside. I've uh, you know it's interesting when we were doing the remote at the Mississippi Economic Council event a few weeks ago, three weeks ago, I, I believe, right after legis- the legislature kicked off down at the trademark and and I was approached by someone at Mississippi College to come out and speak they have a, like an entrepreneur uh, curriculum and was invited to come out and speak and of gosh I honored humbled that they would ask and of course I'm going to make some time to do that coming up next fall by the way so I always enjoy getting out and and bringing a business perspective, a real-world perspective. I know when I was in school, I always enjoyed folks coming from the outside into the classroom. Because you, you want to see, you want to kind of see, well, is that what my life's going to be like? Because at that point, you're you know, starting to think about that. And you, you want to maybe follow some path or, or get some inspiration and guidance from a path. I think that's just natural when you're at that at, uh, impressionable age and trying to figure out what you want to do. so But I appreciate that, uh, Gary. How can Joe Biden claim he lowered the debt ceiling if we need to increase it now? He, he didn't actually claim that. That's Linda from Laurel. What he claims is that he reduced the deficit. So there's a difference, the debt. Uh, think about that as, uh, let's say, if you have a mortgage or you have a credit card or you owe money on a vehicle, that would be your debt. The deficit would be uh, the difference between the amount you bring in in terms of income, let's just measure that over a month, and the amount that you spend. The difference between that, if you're upside down, meaning you spent more than you took in, that would be a deficit. So what Joe says is that he reduced the deficit from his first year in office to his second year in office. He's, he's right about that. What he fails to always explain is the only reason the deficit was so crazy high in his first year of office is because he 
sponsored and pushed a $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan bill. That's what blew the deficit up. And then the next year, he just didn't repeat that, didn't pass the same legislation. And so the deficit came down, if you could call it that, if you could call it that, from $2.8 trillion to $1.54, somewhere in that neighborhood. And he's taking victory laps. Look, I brought the deficit down. I've described it as, well, that's like saying you, you dug a hole and then you put the dirt back in it. Well, you wouldn't have had to put the dirt back in it if you hadn't dug the hole in the first place. But he never. Every time you bring up that example, I think a cool hand, Luke. (laughs) I I just picture the man with no eyes and the warden. What we have here is a failure to communicate. (laughs) I like when they're out there in the chain game. (laughs) Taking it off here, boss. Remember? (laughs) Checking the tree, boss. (laughs) I want you to know that we watched that movie in an assembly in my high school. Cool Hand Luke. Can you Can't no that? man eat 50 eggs. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> could you do that today? Probably not. I don't think you could do it today. For a litany of reasons. Well, I went to school, had 9 through 12, four grades, and we all gathered in what are they, what are they call general assembly in our little spots in the gym there. And we had the, you know, the eight millimeter projectors, and we watched Cool Hand Luke. That's a true story. You couldn't do that today. No. The only time I ever got to to watch a movie as a special event, other than like in English class where we've read the book, now we're going to watch the movie. Okay. Although that was that was always funny when you get to Romeo and Juliet and they pull out the old '60s Romeo and Juliet that has nudity in it. That was always that always got a tittering from the crowd. Oh. But in third grade, I think it was third grade. It was the second or third grade. We took a field trip, and it was we were supposed to go on a field trip somewhere else. Whatever happened, it got canceled. But we still had the field trip, and we went to the movies and saw a goofy movie at the movie theater on a field trip from class. Unbelievable! Not nearly as good a movie as Cool Hand Luke. No, that was we were special. We got to watch Cool Hand Luke. Zach in Oxford says, I believe the only reason that people are pushing so hard for this is because we are controlled and government pushing it on us, which causes a massive reaction. Uh, We're we're talking about, I believe here, this bill that would prevent auto manufacturers, right? That's what we're talking about, from selling direct to consumers without the presence of a third-party dealership. He says, Gerard, you're right. Electric vehicles definitely are going to have a big place in our society, but there's no need to cram it down anybody's throat. Yeah, and I don't think this is cramming down your throat. And honestly, to me, this doesn't, it's irrelevant that it's an electric vehicle. It's really just should a manufacturer be able to sell into this state, no matter what it is. I could talk for hours about the evolution of the computer industry because we, we faced this. We had a similar, we call it the gray market, is what it's called. Uh, and we we faced this and wrestled with this as well, where we were we were a dealer and we were competing with the manufacturer in some cases, and we had to say, guys, this ain't going to work. You're going to run us out of business here. Things have a way of working themselves out. I think it will here as well. Final segment on middays when we return. You know what that means. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. We'll do it live on Super Talk Mississippi. 
stumble out of bed and I stumble to the kitchen Pour myself a cup of ambition and yawn and stretch and try to come to life Jump in the shower and the blood starts pumping Out on the streets the traffic starts jumping with folks like me on the job from nine to five just informed it's the great Dolly Parton's birthday. She's ageless. Isn't she? But if you're measuring, she's 77. <laughs> when discussing health care, this is on the ceasefire text line. Lots of great texts today, folks, and I apologize that we didn't get to so many of them. Do really appreciate it. And bring them up again tomorrow if we can't get to them today. When discussing health care, consideration should be given to nonprofits making millionaires at the cost of the hospitals and patients. The, the, the attached is from NMMC's. Not sure. I can't see it. It's kind of small. Can yeah, you I couldn't read? get it to Zoom. Yeah. NMMC's 2020-990. All for capitalism, but propping up a hospital with taxpayer funds while making millionaires is redistribution from the poor to the rich. Your thoughts? Well, um, I think if you looked at the hospitals in question here in Mississippi in particular that are struggling, uh, you would find that the the top brass isn't pulling down the kind of money you're talking about. I would also say that if, sure, if we're going to provide taxpayer funding to these organizations, yeah, I think it's reasonable for the taxpayers to perhaps – um, have some influence on the, um, the the pay, the compensation. I think that's reasonable and fair. But that's the problem with the government getting involved to start with. I don't want to see that, period, honestly. It's just no place for government. Um, but the other thing I will say is that as far as these nonprofit hospitals, I've seen the same thing. There are a lot of nonprofits that have some really hefty salaries going to the top execs in these organizations. Well, that's on the boards. That's on the nonprofits. That's on the people that donate lots of money to these nonprofits. Don't do it if you're not happy with that. If you're not happy with that. On the other hand, you know how many people can run some of these giant healthcare institutions? Not many. Well, it gets a little stickier when you look at how those nonprofit. I think he's talking about Northeast Mississippi Medical Center. Okay, below. I have seen the pay list there. I've seen that one point seven million from the top for the top person. But also think about the impact on the local economy of a hospital like that. I mean, Northeast Mississippi Medical Center. It seems like every time you turn around, they're building something to provide another avenue of medical service. Contractors, all the supplies every eatery around there. I mean, these hospitals have a larger economic impact than just within the walls of the hospital. That's always the flaw in the analysis of, let's just look at the top five or six people. I I saw the same list now that you mentioned it. I I didn't recognize the acronym NMMC, but I get it. I saw. So you're so right about that. We we fail to consider just how how much broader is the economic impact of these organizations that, if not run right at the highest levels, fail and cause way more cost, economically speaking, and frankly, just to the well-being of the community and the people that live in it. Not just the employees, but lots of other people, too, benefit. That's why I'm hesitant 
to get into this uh, this discussion about, well, they just make too much money. I would also point out, sure, you could cut their pay. It still doesn't even come close, come close to, to addressing the problem here. Not even close. You also need to consider that, okay, well, if you cut the pay and you had a less qualified person, you may have even a bigger deficit in the operation. There's, there's a reason that, that uh, should be a reason, a, um, a financial reason, that you're willing to pay more to the people who run these organizations who have way more impact on the bottom line than, it's just a fact, than a rank-and-file and single employee does because their decisions are so sweeping, so broad. Often the difference between are we going to make it or not Heck, even on a smaller scale, I've had to make those decisions in my business, which I don't know what North Mississippi's annual revenue is, but, I mean, ours we sold to a public company. It's public information. We were about $225 million at the time we sold annual revenue. You make the wrong call, you're done. I think I shared with you the story of Bill Gates. Saw him back in the, in the mid-'80s when Microsoft was a burgeoning company, and he stood in front of a room of about 200 of us, all Microsoft partners, and he said, you know, we're all 90 days away from failure, meaning if you don't make the right decision, you're done in 90 days. And he said, including us, talking about Microsoft. Now look at it. So I I don't know that that's the place to go, and I know a lot of people are mad. Well, look at the top brass. They make all the money. Well, that's socialism. That's what the left does. On the other hand, if we're going to provide taxpayer funding, yeah, we ought to have that discussion. Agree. At least cap your pay. No bonuses and stuff like that, maybe, until you get achieve certain levels. Make it an incentive for the taxpayers. We're out of time here today. Appreciate all the great discussion and engagement, but the good news is we'll be back in the Element Well Studios tomorrow. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.